John and Ruby Laurie live on a 98-acre farm in Buckingham County, Virginia. There, the retired couple watches over nine cows, nine newborn calves, three dogs, and a donkey. On this sunny afternoon, the donkey looks like he needs a little touch-up on his hooves. You need a new pair of shoes? Huh? Stop acting like you don't care. John and his wife Ruby walk me through their pasture. He points out a couple of chores he needs to tackle cleaning out stumps, feeding the cattle. And despite his age, 74, he makes it clear he's not planning to quit farming anytime soon. Oh, I'm young now. By the grace of God, I'd like to do it another, what, 20 years. We, we're retired, remember? We're retired. We're supposed to be living out our golden years. Their plan is to live out those golden years right here in their small community of Union Hill. It's so green here. It's beautiful. That's the way I would like to keep it. But as you may know, we are having some problems with that right now. The lorries in their land are in the path of the controversial Atlantic Coast Pipeline. It's known as the ACP around here. The Atlantic Coast Pipeline would wind 600 miles underground, carrying natural gas from West Virginia to Virginia and North Carolina. This pipeline, which is one of the largest that has ever been built in decades, will provide Virginia with an energy superhighway. Critics say this may be less about providing gas and more about profit. Pipeline developers first announced the ACP in 2014 and expected it would be in use by now. But construction on the pipeline has barely begun, and the lorries swept up in a conflict they never expected to face are fighting to keep it that way. This is Broken Ground, a podcast about environmental stories in the South and the people at the heart of them. I'm Claudine Abade McElwain. In our last episode, we took you to North Carolina to meet two women who, after learning their water was contaminated, took up the fight against coal ash. I didn't even know that these pits even leaked. There is no one that will fight to protect your children the way that you will. Amy Brown and Deborah Graham and other advocates are still fighting for Duke Energy to clean up the coal ash pits across the state of North Carolina. If you didn't catch that episode, we hope you'll go back and listen. In this episode, we're going to tackle the fight against the multi-billion dollar Atlantic Coast Pipeline. In the first half of the program, we'll give you a glimpse into how the lorries are fighting the threat of pipeline pollution in their hometown and examine how marginalized communities are most affected by environmental policies. What makes this situation even worse is that the Southern Environmental Law Center has uncovered evidence to show that there isn't even a need for this pipeline. We'll get to that in the second half of the episode. John Laurie grew up in Union Hill. The predominantly African-American township was established by former slaves in the 1870s. Today, its population is about 200 people. John's family history there stretches back generations. As a young man, John left Virginia when he joined the Air Force and lived most of his adult life in California. But in 2003, he and Ruby came back to his first home. He bought some property not far from his family's land, just down the street from Lori Lane. What made you want to move back here? Rolling hills, the beauty, the natural beauty, the quietness, what the accustomed to them, just used to it. And after being here for a while, 
I came to see why he wanted to come back. The Lorries pretty much lived an unassuming life on their Buckingham property. They spent most of their days caring for their land and animals. But then in 2014, a concerned neighbor knocked on their door. She asked me, had I heard about the natural gas that they wanted to put in this area? And I said, no, but what's wrong with natural gas? Ruby would soon learn just what that natural gas was going to mean for her and her husband. Their neighbor was referring to the ACP, a pipeline project backed by three powerful energy conglomerates, Dominion, Duke, and Southern Company. The Richmond, Virginia-based Dominion is the largest owner, with 48% of the ownership interest. The 42-inch wide pipeline is designed to carry 1.5 billion cubic feet a day of natural gas from the Marcellus Shale Formation, a massive layer of rock running under several states, including New York, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia, which is where the pipeline would begin. But to carry the natural gas from West Virginia along the pipeline's 600-mile route, it needs to pass through some of the steepest mountain slopes in Virginia, cross the Appalachian Trail, trench through thousands of streams, and finally, requires something called compressor stations. And that's where John and Ruby's story fits in. Union Hill is a community in Buckingham County that could be directly impacted by the construction of the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. An air compressor station is planned for Buckingham County, which would maintain the pressure and flow of natural gas. Opponents have several issues with the compressor station, including pollution and safety. The Union Hill compressor station, passing through John and Ruby's neighborhood, is one of three along the ACP. It would be a large and noisy industrial facility with four gas-fired turbines, running at all hours of the day. What concerns John and Ruby most, however, are the possible health effects of living near one of these stations. They worry about explosions, leaks, and accidents. And then there's the air pollution. Many of their neighbors are elderly, and compressor stations release toxins that have been linked to an increase in asthma and cancer rates. We have not been told all of the facts how many tons of poison do we have to breathe on a daily basis or monthly basis or yearly basis? The day their neighbor knocked on their door, the Lori's lives went in a new and unexpected direction. Over the past five years, John and Ruby have become fixtures at protests and government meetings fighting federal, state, and local approvals of the compressor station. One day somebody said that I was an activist, and I'm like, really? <laughs> so I told my granddaughter, they said I was an activist. She says, Gam, you are an activist. <laughs> I said, okay. So um, I had never been involved with anything. I didn't know anything about um, environmental justice or anything like that. I learned all of that stuff later on. They looked for certain areas to build these structures in. Usually, they'll find an area people of color, poor people. They don't expect them to have the resources to fight back. If they have money, more likely they have political clout. You have politicians to fight on your behalf. So you choose these areas and you have less resistance. Normally, when we're talking about environmental justice, we really are focusing on environmental injustice. 
This is Kendall Crawford, the director of Interfaith Power and Light. The organization's mission is to craft a religious response to global warming. One of the things that Kendall thinks about in her work is how to address irresponsible environmental practices that disproportionately affect marginalized communities. You know, the ideal is for everyone to have clean air, clean water, clean land, clean food, and of course, a safe and stable climate. So it should be a fundamental human right just to allow everyone to be able to thrive. How does environmental justice apply to the Union Hill story as you see it? So essentially, you know, you have an African-American community, fairly low-income community, and you know, out of all of the sites throughout Virginia that Dominion could have picked, they chose Union Hill in Buckingham County. That decision was strategic on their part. Um, you know, corporations, you know, when you think about it from their angle, they want to find places where, you know, they think there'll be the least resistance to their efforts, where they think they'll be able to kind of easily implement their agenda so they can start, you know, making their money, make their profits for their shareholders. One fact that really blew me away um, during my first trip down to Buckingham County um, was that essentially the descendants of the plantation owners, um, Variety Shades, they actually um, they sold the property to Dominion to locate their proposed compressor station. And so, of course, when you think about it, the descendants of the enslaved still are living there. So here we have uh, another harm occurring to people that were once enslaved by, you know, another set of people. It's like history repeating itself in, yep, yep, a different, yep. in a different and new setting. And kind of going on that point, you know, the issue of environmental justice, you know, it's not something new. It's kind of just the same oppression. It's just a different face of it. While critics like Kendall Crawford say Dominion chose the compressor station location because it expected to meet little resistance, Dominion, for its part, denies this. But the criticism may have been on the mind of Dominion executives when, as you can hear in this news coverage, they came to the people of Union Hill with a proposal in November of 2018. In advance of the controversial Buckingham compressor station, there's potential for peace. It comes in the form of a $5.1 million investment proposed by Dominion Energy to go towards building a new community center and amping up an emergency response team. And that was just a slap in the face. And $5 million is nothing. It's just a drop in the bucket. What can you do with $5 million for a community? Nothing. I don't want it because it's blood money. Union Hill has become a rallying cry for activists across the region who see the elderly African-American community as a microcosm of the environmental problems faced by marginalized people across the United States. The cause has attracted big names, like co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, Reverend Dr. William J. Barber II, and former Vice President Al Gore. Seem right. The church we were in at Union Grove had a banner above the pulpit behind it said, stand for what's right, even if you're standing alone. We're here to say to Union Hill, you are not standing alone. We are standing with you. 
In May 2019, John Ruby and around 100 protesters took their message to Richmond, Virginia, marching across the Robert E. Lee Bridge, singing and chanting their support for the people of Buckingham. I never ever dreamed that I would be in a march like this. And um, like I said before, you know, sometimes the Lord, he takes you out of your comfort zone. So you can do something, you know, that's beneficial, not only for yourself, but for other people also. I am a uh, fifth generation of my great-great-grandfather, Taylor Harper, who was a freed slave and purchased our land for $15 back in 1885. Uh, that land has been in our family for over 100 years. The folk that I know that grew up with me are in their 60s, 70s, and my eldest cousin in the Harper family, who is 82 years old. Um, so, yes, and she has uh, uh, respiratory issues now. So if that compressor station were to come, it would almost as much as kill her, you know. So um, that's my fight for my family. See, this stuff cannot be done in darkness or behind closed doors. Let the world know what is happening. Those are the voices of Richard Walker and John Laurie. Our producer, Nina Ernest, caught up with them at the rally. But before she left, she also talked to Virginia Delegate Sam Rasool. Pipelines have one purpose, to put a whole lot of money in the hands of a few rich people. That's it. We don't need it. Virginia has an opportunity to stop this thing, and we should do everything possible. What does that even mean? We don't need it. We'll talk about that next. Since I started working at the Southern Environmental Law Center, I've spent a lot of time learning about the ACP. I can tell you that I've seen Dominion and Duke encounter a lot of pushback against this pipeline, and not just by environmental justice advocates. Conservationists worry about the heavy toll construction will take on the land, water, and its animals. Hikers are concerned that the pipeline's route runs underneath the famed Appalachian Trail, and private landowners are upset that their land is being seized by eminent domain. But what really got my attention about this project, what really stuck out for me, was what attorneys here kept saying about it not being needed. That we, the public, don't need the natural gas from this pipeline. I've mentioned in other episodes that before working for SELC, I spent many years working in a newsroom. That might help you understand why when attorneys told me they had lots of evidence to support this, in fact, loads of files worth, and it was all public information, the first thing I said was, give it to me. Show me the evidence. And my next question for attorneys was, how can a project that is going to disrupt so many lives and put so much land at risk be okayed if no one needs it? To clue you in on what I was learning about, I asked my colleague Greg Bupert to come join us in the studio. He's the lead attorney on the Southern Environmental Law Center's Cases Against the Pipeline. 
Greg, what do you mean when you say we don't need the Atlantic Coast Pipeline? Well, you've really gotten to the heart of the issue with this project. Dominion has said from the beginning that about 80% of the capacity of this pipeline will be used to run power plants. Those are power plants in Virginia and power plants in North Carolina. So the first question we asked ourselves was, is there a need for gas to run power plants in those states? The short answer is no. Analysts have stated that existing pipelines would be enough to fuel existing power plants. In 2015, when Dominion applied for the pipeline, it said it needed the gas to fuel its power plants. Since then, it has started retiring gas-fired power plants, and it has cut its predicted energy demands by 3,000 megawatts, the equivalent of two large gas-fired power plants. SELC attorneys found this out by digging into what Dominion has been telling Virginia regulators. The Virginia State Corporation Commission is responsible for oversight of the Dominion utility. And what we've learned there is Dominion has been grossly inflating the demand for power in Virginia for the last 10 years. That's not just our opinion. The regulators agreed and sent Dominion back to the drawing board on its predictions of energy demand for Virginia. So the reason that matters is without that demand for power, the need for this project really starts to fall away. If you don't need it to run power plants, then you don't need it. Not to mention, states in the southeast, like North Carolina, are now home to a booming solar industry, a source of jobs and cheaper power. I think we're looking at a future in Virginia that's headed towards renewable energy, which makes an investment in a piece of infrastructure like the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, which will be in the ground uh, for decades, influencing our energy decisions, really a bad idea. It sounds like the project might be obsolete before it's even built. That is certainly a concern. Then what's the advantage for Dominion to build this pipeline? Why are they going ahead with this project? Getting the infrastructure in the ground is a guaranteed revenue stream for decades for the company. I want to let that sink in for a moment, that a pipeline builder makes money just for building the pipe, regardless of how much it is used. Building the pipeline, not necessarily transporting the gas, will make Dominion and Duke and their investors money, a lot of money. To understand how that works, we need to talk about something called FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. This is the agency that gives the go-ahead for interstate pipelines, and there's really only one question it's historically ever had to answer to give a pipeline the nod. Does the public need the project? By all accounts, FERC has rarely met a pipeline it didn't think we needed. And true to form, the ACP got the okay from FERC in 2017. And that go-ahead comes with a crucial guarantee from the federal government. FERC has allowed the pipeline builder to charge its customers a fee that allows the builder to collect a 15% profit every year. It is supposed to provide a hedge against risk for building pipelines. So building energy infrastructure in America comes with a guaranteed 15% rate of return to pipeline developers and their shareholders. To put that figure in perspective, the suggested rate of return on a really good retirement account is 6 to 7%. A little more on how this works. 
Dominion, a majority owner of the pipeline, is able to charge its customers for the cost of building the pipeline. At this point, it's almost $8 billion. And on top of that, it also gets to charge its customers for 15% of the value of the pipeline for every year until it fully depreciates. So they'll get back the money they spent to build the pipeline and then some. And we, the customers, pay for that. And this is something that I think Dominion's never really been honest with the public about, which is we're all going to pay. Dominion's customers are going to pay for this project. Since 2014, there have been nearly 40 interstate pipelines proposed and approved in the Marcellus Shale region. And I have to wonder, if a company can guarantee its investors a 15% rate of return for building something, regardless of how they use it, why not build it? That's just easy money. When a pipeline builder like Dominion goes to FERC and asks to build a pipeline, it has to provide contracts to prove someone is going to buy the gas from that pipeline. In the case of the ACP, Dominion is building the pipeline, and because it's a utility, it's also buying the gas. Here's Greg again. And we had gone to FERC and said, FERC, there are a lot of unanswered questions, and the only fair way to get to the bottom of those is to hold a, an evidentiary hearing, a trial, and we really get to the truth about what's driving this project and, and whether there's a demand for it. Um, and FERC turned us down on that. But something unusual happened when FERC said no thanks. Even some of the members of the commission, they've started to question the need in a way that they haven't before. This is North Carolina-based energy reporter Elizabeth Oots. What she's talking about is FERC Commissioner Cheryl LaFleur dissenting. In LaFleur's opinion, she said she doubted the public need for this pipeline. In part because the Atlantic Coast Pipeline was being proposed at the same time as another pipeline that, you know, at times would run <laughs> right next to the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. She was really um, clear in questioning whether both projects are, are needed, saying, you know, both projects appear to be receiving gas from the same location and both deliver gas that can reach some common destination markets. And then she later said, I'm not persuaded that both of these projects as proposed are in the public interest. Pipeline developers must be itching to get the ACP in the ground. And in their hurry, they've pushed federal and state agencies with the backing of the Trump administration to rush permits and have run afoul of environmental and public land use laws. Based on our best estimates, only about 8% of this project is actually in the ground. Dominion has lost seven permits required for construction, so construction is not going forward right now. It doesn't have a permit to cross two national forests the George Washington in Virginia and the Monongahela in West Virginia. It doesn't have a permit to cross the Blue Ridge Parkway. It can't cross the Appalachian Trail. Most importantly, the Fourth Circuit said the U.S. Forest Service didn't even have authority to let the pipeline cross the trail. That issue is unresolved. Dominion has said publicly that it's taking that case to the Supreme Court, which I think is a steep uphill climb for the company. So the bottom line is, right now, this project doesn't have a path forward. Remember, the pipeline is supposed to be done and operational by now. 
Given the legal hurdles still ahead for this pipeline, I asked Utz the billion-dollar question. After all this time, do you think this pipeline's going to be built? When I first started covering it, it seemed like a really um, uphill battle, and it still is. It's certainly uh, some scrappy activists versus uh, a very powerful corporation. But, but yeah, I think the chances seemed very, very low when I first started reporting that they would be able to stop it or slow it down in any way, and yet here we are. And I'm also looking at the numbers for how much the pipeline is going to cost and wondering, okay, how many more billions of dollars are the pipeline developers going to commit to this project before shareholders get nervous? Bloomberg reporter Alex Steele recently had the chance to ask Duke Energy CEO Lynn Good a similar question. Is there a time frame or cost that you say I'm out? Like $9 billion, an extra year delay. Like you have to have those kind of risk models. You know, Alex, at this point, I don't have a specific thing that I would share with you. Our commitment is to work through these challenges because we have such confidence. That's where our mind is and our heart is right now is to continue pushing forward with this pipeline. So moving on to sort of a broader Dominion and Duke for now are not backing down. But remember the scrappy activists John and Ruby from earlier in the episode? They and their allies aren't planning to back down either. In fact, a group the Lorries belong to, the Friends of Buckingham, are in court suing the state agencies that permitted the compressor station for violating clean air laws and ignoring environmental justice. When we first started, they called us crazy, dumb, and a few other them old country names. Do you know or realize who you're going up against? As I said goodbye to the lorries and their farm, John brought up a parallel from the Bible. In the Bible where David, a little shepherd boy, went up against Goliath. Goliath, nine feet tall. Yeah, and Dominion, they, they just thought we were going to just roll over and they could walk all over us. But uh, they saw something different. Not just because we did it, it was because of all the help that we had. As long as I have breath in my body, I'm going to keep fighting. Next time on the podcast, we talk about the future of energy in the Southeast as it transitions off of fossil fuels, why regulations make solar in schools easy for some, but not for all. What are they called again? Solar panels. Get solar panels so then you can save your money. Save your electricity bill, people. Broken Ground is a podcast by the Southern Environmental Law Center. It's put together by Nina Ernest, Emily Richardson Lorente, and Jenny Daly. I'm your host, Claudine Bade McElwain. Our theme music is by Eric Knudsen. The archival interview clips you heard in this episode were found on WCAV, WRIC, Bloomberg, and NPR.